The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Sarah Spaniolo, and I'm the Director of Hospitality and Next Steps here at Christ Pres. And I'm going to read today's scripture, which is from 2 Timothy 1, 3 through 14. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of our own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Christ Prez. I want to turn our attention to the screen where we will pray a prayer together of illumination before the sermon. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit be our teacher, and your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Great hearing your voices today. Uh, Welcome those of you who are here. Welcome those of you who are dialing in from the breezeway. I see a lot of you out there through these doors uh, with the sunlight and the open air. Greetings also to those of you who are joining us uh, from home. Uh, We love you. We miss you. We're glad uh, you are staying safe. Uh, If you are among those who are in the high-risk categories, that's uh, especially the case uh, Uh, We can't wait to see your faces again when the time is right for that. Uh, But for now, we're we're continuing in our our new series on 2 Timothy, and uh, it's a series we're calling Life Together, and uh, this letter, 2 Timothy, is a letter from an older minister uh, to a younger minister, from a mentor to a mentee, from an apostle to uh, a protege in whom he has taken uh, special interest. And 
if you've been reading ahead, some of you I know like to do that at home, recommend that uh, if you're able to do that. Uh, but uh, you might have noticed that especially in these first verses of Second Timothy, Paul is gushing with uh, affirmational words and sentences and statements toward the young minister. He aims to encourage. He aims to put courage in to this young man who we might call timid Timothy. There are plenty of signs that indicate to us that, that, that Timothy is shy, he's reserved, uh, maybe a little bit scared, uh, maybe a little bit ashamed of some things about himself and this calling that has been placed on his life. And so Paul is trying to put courage into him for the task that he's been called to fulfill. Timothy needs this because the preacher's task has a military component to it. Uh, it's found in these words, guard. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Now, this word, wherever it's used in ancient literature, refers to guarding against marauders, against greed, against idolatry, and in the case of Timothy, guard against falsehood, guard against lies. Doctrine matters. Truth is everything, because it's the truth that will set people free, and it's the lack of truth that will keep people in slavery. But this is a scary task because Paul the mentor is writing Timothy from prison and Paul has been put in prison because he's been guarding the gospel. And people don't like that he has been guarding the gospel because the gospel is threatening to all cultures outside of the gospel. And so Timothy must be asking, at least in the back of his mind, am I next? Am I the next one to go to prison? Am I the next one, like Paul, to, to be awaiting his execution orders from the emperor. So he needs some courage. And then there's an added hurdle that makes Timothy especially timid, and that's that the cultural identity markers of his day are not in his favor. And I, I did a little bit of survey of, of the different ways that Timothy falls short of the cultural identity markers last week, so I won't belabor it too much, but, but just by way of reminder, uh, wisdom in those times was associated with age, was associated with a gray beard and, and, and a lot of years behind you, and so Paul has to tell Timothy, don't let people despise you for your youth, because he was a young man. That was out of the ordinary. Timothy had a sickness, and we, we know from the story in the Gospels about uh, the blind man that, 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 that people in those days often associated chronic illness with some sort of morally suspect behavior. Remember the disciples asked Jesus about the blind man? Who, who was it that committed the sin that caused him to be blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Timothy lives with something maybe similar to irritable bowel syndrome. He's got a chronic stomach condition, 
And Paul encourages him, take some wine for your stomach. Racial superiority was a thing. Jews looked down on Greeks. Greeks despised Jews. And Timothy had both Jewish and Greek blood running through his veins because he was biracial. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. And talked last week... uh, maybe a little bit speculatively, that that Timothy had some sort of father wound, perhaps, because uh, Paul makes mention of Timothy's grandmother and mother, but he doesn't make mention of Timothy's father, which means one of three things, probably. Either Timothy's father died young and was out of the picture, or Timothy's father did not die young and was spiritually disengaged. Because it was his grandmother and his mother that mentored him in the faith, according to Paul. And so, so when, when you have all of these cultural identity markers working against you, you're going to have to engage in a battle with shame. Shame. That's what makes us timid. That's what makes us... Uh, excessively shy and and afraid to engage the world around us. Shame. And so the message this week is, Timothy or whoever, put your name in the blank, put my name in the blank, don't be ashamed of you, don't be ashamed of me, and don't be ashamed of the gospel. So let's start here. Don't be ashamed of you. You are not what the culture says you are. The labels that the culture puts on you do not belong on you, and so you can shake those labels off because it's God who names you. It's God who gives you your identity, not the culture around you. When Paul starts here, he says, first and foremost, remember, Timothy, I'm not ashamed of you. I I know you well, We've walked together. I'm your mentor. I'm not ashamed of you at all. He says, I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. I remember your tears. Now, that's a significant statement in in, in this culture, too, because it was a macho culture. It was patriarchal, macho culture. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, this tender, sensitive man, is that you're a rare gem. Maybe even a subtle reminder that Jesus wept. That Jesus identified himself as one who is gentle and humble in heart. And and, and one who wants to invite rest, not intimidation, in the people around him. You're a rare gem, Timothy. In this macho culture, you're a sensitive man. He goes on and he says, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I applaud your sincere faith. I I applaud the way that God has gifted you. I'm not ashamed of you. But then he goes on. He says, God's not ashamed of you either. He put his spirit in you. And he's given you a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. That's who lives in you. A spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Not not a spirit that shrinks back. Not a spirit that, 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 that is you know, driven by fear and shame, but, but, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control. There are echoes here of, of the fifth chapter of Galatians, which Paul also wrote, where he, where he says to Galatians and to all believers, 
You have not been given a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you've been given a spirit of adoption as a son or as a daughter by which you are able to cry, Abba, Father, to God. You've got intimate access. And so one of the things that Paul is trying to get clear to Timothy is this, that that, that you need to see the cultural identity markers around you for what they are. They are lies about your dignity and worth. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a pecking order. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a hierarchy. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a social ranking system. No such thing in the eyes of God. And yet every culture is stained with these identity markers that that, that try to steal from our awareness the way that God names us and, and to name us in a different way that enslaves us to things like fear and shame. Paul was raised in a school where rabbis, young rabbis like Saul of Tarsus before he came Paul, where rabbis were taught to pray, thank you my God that I am not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave, and that I'm not a woman. And yet the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, just just as a defiant way to confront this way of thinking and to, to dismantle this way of thinking, to deconstruct the culture's way of thinking, the Holy Spirit sees fit in, in the book of Acts that the first converts to Christianity are a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. And this comes through in, in Paul's life and ministry as well. As soon as he meets Christ, it begins the deconstruction of this mindset and all of these cultural identity markers in Paul. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a Gentile, Paul once prayed, but now he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's mentoring a young pastor who is half Gentile, ethnically. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a slave, Paul used to Pray, and now he calls himself a slave to Christ. And he writes letters like the book of Philemon on behalf of an escaped slave who'd been oppressed by his owner Onesimus. And he writes, or, or, I'm sorry, uh, Onesimus the slave oppressed by the slave owner Philemon who identifies as a Christian. And Paul meets Onesim, Onesimus, leads him to Christ, sends him back to Philemon but with a letter. And the letter says, I'm sending your slave back to you, but, but don't treat him as a slave anymore. Treat him as a brother. Anybody who's upset about the slavery references in the Bible, realize that emancipation in England, emancipation and civil rights in the United States have all been led by people who are Christian people, convicted by what the Bible says about things like slavery. It shouldn't be the case. The Bible is, is, is the document. The Bible is the moral authority that established the conditions for slavery to be abolished. It's right there, the book of Philemon. It's a one-chapter book in the New Testament. He used to pray, thank you that I'm not a slave, and now he says no person should treat another person as a slave unless we're slaves to Christ who's our benevolent king. He used to pray, thank you, my God, that I'm not a woman. And here he is praising and giving credit to Timothy's mother and grandmother, 
for leading him to Christ and raising him as a disciple of Christ. What kinds of cultural identity markers might Jesus want to deconstruct in us? Yeah, we don't pray, thank you that I'm not a slave. We don't pray, thank you that I'm not a woman. We don't, we don't pray, thank you that I'm like a, a Gentile. We're, we're post-enlightenment enlightenment people. We're more sophisticated than that. We're more, we're more advanced than that. We're, we're, we're not as culturally, culturally regressive as that. Or are we? Do we just have different markers? What kinds of prayers might we pray if our thoughts and feelings were given words? Thank you, my God, that I'm not a Democrat. Thank you, my God, that I'm not a Republican. Just a couple of weeks ago, a pastor, a well-known pastor, goes on national television and says, you can't be a Christian if you don't vote Republican. And about a month or two ago, another pastor went on record publicly saying, you can't be a Christian if you don't vote Democrat. Who's right? Who's wrong? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, if you're a, if you're a parishioner in, in, in the church where the pastor says you can't be a Christian and vote Republican and, and you're a Democrat, you're going to be darn sure that you're a secret Democrat. You're going you're to have imposed upon you a spirit of slavery leading to fear. And if you're in the other church and, and, and maybe you're a red state person, you're going to be afraid to speak up. You're going to be afraid to say, well, what about where, what it says here in the Bible? Because you know you're going to get shut down and canceled. Spirit of slavery leading to fear. Leads us not to speak up about ideas. Because things have been added to the gospel. Jesus plus partisan loyalty equals your salvation. Jesus plus partisan loyalty equals your inclusion and your belonging. No. Because as soon as you add one thing to the gospel, you subtract the whole gospel from the picture. And it's no longer a spirit of adoption, of, of sonship, which is, which is a spirit of belonging and inclusion and embrace and the freedom to, to freely exchange ideas with op open Bibles. Now it's a spirit of slavery that subtracts the gospel, that subtracts grace, that creates the fear of rejection. Or how about this? Thank you, my God, that I have a family. We know legalism is in the air in a local church when single people feel more alone and isolated in a local church than married people do. Do you know that? And that's, that's a burden of action that's placed not on single people, but on married people. To ensure that we're creating a climate and an environment, a belonging that doesn't put the nuclear family over the body of Christ. Body of Christ lasts forever. The nuclear family will give way to the body of Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Every single person who's in Christ is, more, is, is as married as they will ever be as part of the bride of Christ. And as part of a family as they will ever be as daughters and sons of God. And, and so it's upon the local church to help them feel that way. Here's another one on, you know, thank you, my God, that I have a family. 
Things like Mother's Day and Father's Day, when it's all celebration and no lament for people like Timothy who have painful father stories and painful mother stories, if it's all celebration and no lament, that, that's an exclusionary act. It's unintentional, but it's exclusionary. So we have to decenter the nuclear family from the life of the church and while also elevating it is a very important thing, right? It's, it's nuanced. It's both and. So as to ensure that everybody is part of the family. Thank you, my God, that I have money. And a lot of it. Unlike other people who don't have money and a lot of it. We were, uh, we were told a story of a a family that had moved to Nashville and they got this, this house and, and the kids were just mesmerized at how big the house was. And it was only a matter of one month after meeting new friends and being invited over to new friends' house, houses where the, child, where the oldest child was embarrassed to invite friends over to their house because it now felt so small. We've got to be careful about these things as well. The person with the smallest house should feel just as free as the person with the biggest house to invite people over to dinner. Otherwise, there's shame in the air that needs to be dealt with in the body of Christ. Thank you, my God, that I have morals. I remember a conversation at a wedding once that I got into with one of the bridesmaids and And she said, you know, I'm kind of attracted to Jesus, but I I would never go to church because I'm too much of a sinner to go to church. I don't think I'd be accepted for some of the things that I've done and been involved with. You know there's legalism in, in the air when there's a sense that Pharisees would feel welcome and sinners would not feel welcome. You sort of reverse the order of things in terms of, of, of what the, the environment around Jesus was like, where, where sinners were and prostitutes, tax collectors were, 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 were drawn to him like a magnet or like a moth to a flame. And Pharisees, the, the, the self-righteous religious people, just wanted to attack him. And yet life in the church of Jesus Christ is the opposite, where the Pharisees feel like they're on the outs, The Pharisees, the self-righteous ones, are the ones who are excluded. The ones who separate the world between the good people and the bad people and put themselves on the side of the good people don't feel like they belong. And yet the people who've always said, I'm too much of a sinner to go in church, oh, oh my goodness, really? There's a place for me? You mean Jesus runs toward my stuff instead of away from my stuff? That's what he's like? Could it possibly be that, that a church could be that way as well? See, we have all kinds of cultural identity markers. Some of them are secular, some of them are religious, and and they are all exclusionary. They all say there's an us and there's a them. And those who feel like they're part of the the them walk around in fear of being themselves and walk, walk around in shame for not being normal to the culture and the climate. The truth of God to Timothy and to us is this. Your credentials do not come from the culture, but from Christ. Here's your appraisal, young Timothy. Verse 9, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Union with Christ. 
It means that, that, that because you're united with him by faith, you are cleansed. You've been forgiven of everything wrong in you. You are clothed. You're, you're covered with the perfect life and righteousness and blamelessness of Christ. That's how God sees you. And you are cared for. Do you know how valued you are? You are so valuable that Christ arranged to give his whole life for your sake so that you could belong. And Julian of Norwich says, in our eyes, we are always falling. In God's eyes, we are always standing. Both are true, but God has the greater insight. Don't be ashamed of you, Timothy. And then Paul goes on, don't be ashamed of me. Remember, Paul's in prison, and, and, and he intimates that nearly all of his supporters have abandoned him. He says in the 15th verse, all who were in Asia have turned away from me. But he says in verse 8, don't you be ashamed of me, Timothy. Don't you turn away from me, but share in the suffering. See, there's a clue there. Why had people abandoned Paul? They'd abandoned Paul because they did not want to share in the fellowship of Paul's suffering, which according to Paul was also sharing in the fellowship of Jesus's suffering. They, they don't want the kind of Jesus that requires you to go through Good Friday to get to Easter or that requires you to go through a cross to get to the crown. They just want to bypass the cost of discipleship and have the rewards and recognition of being in the club. In the eyes of the world, Paul is a prisoner to the emperor. He's awaiting his execution order. His public status is that of a guilty man. Even, even though he was imprisoned, not because he was guilty, but because he was innocent. He's imprisoned for doing the right thing. As many are even today around the world. He was imprisoned for doing the right thing. For preaching and guarding the gospel. The reason why he's in jail is that he's unashamed of Christ. That's why he says in verse 8, my, my conscience is clear. To Paul, a clear conscience is much more important than a clear record in the eyes of the state. You know, 1 Corinthians 4.3, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Wouldn't that be wonderfully freeing to just not care? about other people's judgments, even the government's judgments of us, to be freed from what Jack Miller called being an approval suck, being liberated from being enslaved to the opinions of other people. That's Paul. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Furthermore, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, I don't even care what my judgment of me is. What matters is not what I think of myself. My self-esteem is, is not the thing that's going to get me through. Any more than the approval of others is the thing that's going to get me through. What's going to get me through is what Christ says about me. I am not the emperor's prisoner. I am the Lord's prisoner, he says. Unashamed of Christ with a clear conscience and a clean soul. 
Timothy is at, the, at risk of committing the sin of Peter, which is the sin of cowardice. He talks a big game. Lord, I see what you mean when you say that all these other people are going to deny you. They're, they're a little bit wishy-washy. They're a little bit mushy. But you and I, we've got this courage thing. And so you can be sure, Lord, that, that, that when things get hard for you, I'm going to be there. Right by your side. I will never forsake you. And who is it that falls the hardest? Judas betrayed Jesus once. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Why? Because of social shame and social fear. Because the state is treating Jesus as a criminal now. And so if I associate myself with him, the state might treat me as a criminal and people might think I'm guilty. And so he denies Christ. Even after all he had witnessed and been part of, he denies Christ because he wants Easter without Good Friday. He wants the crown without the cross. Now, in, in our modern context and situation, we're, we're not really that afraid of dying for our faith, but what we do fear is shame by association. Timothy was afraid to be associated with Paul because of what the state could do to him. We are afraid to be associated with Christianity or with certain aspects of Christianity for fear of what it might do to us socially, what it might do to our reputations. In 2010, uh, NPR released uh, an article about Anne Rice who um, you know, wrote The Vampire Chronicles and uh, converted to Christianity but, but, but left Christianity while, according to her, not leaving Christ. She said, I remain committed to Christ but not to being called a Christian anymore. Marcus Mumford of Mumford and Sons, uh, preacher's kid, said something very similar. I think it was in a Rolling Stone interview. That I like Jesus, but I don't want the Christian label anymore. There's an entire movement now called the ex-evangelical movement. Ex-evangelical. And, 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 and an ex-Christian movement as well. And in every case, whether you're talking about Anne Rice or Marcus Mumford or the ex-evangelical narrative, there's some aspect of Christian orthodoxy that creates fear of guilt by association. In this climate, I don't want to be associated with a message that says I am the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, that's, that's way too exclusive. It's way too exclusive for Jesus to say that and furthermore for people to believe that anymore. Or of what Genesis 2 says about marriage and sex, that sex belongs in marriage only and marriage belongs between one man and one woman only. In times like these, there's great pressure to disassociate out of social fear or at least not to talk about it anymore. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus talks openly about gender, echoing Genesis. In the beginning, God made them male and female. Now, 
Well, these are all unpopular messages. We're going to recite another unpopular message of Christianity in the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. We're going to recite that in a few moments. You can't come to the Lord's table unless you recite and believe that openly and confess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart. That he will come to judge the living and the dead. Whew. It'd be social suicide to go on record in this context or this context or this context believing those things. So there's a different kind of pressure. And then add to that pressure the real Christian hypocrisy that exists. The real Christian, the drunk uncles everywhere. I'm one of them. You know, none of us wants to be associated with Cousin Eddie. And you go into any church community and there are Cousin Eddie's everywhere. Ah, I'll have him in my house maybe for a little bit, but I, I hope nobody knows that I'm related or connected to him. And I certainly won't, won't give any indication that I like him or that I consider myself to be at one with him. But here's the rub. Every disassociation from somebody who has put their faith in Christ plus nothing else, any disassociation from that person, whether they are holding to unpopular orthodox beliefs publicly, or whether they are acting in contradiction to the faith that they profess, any disassociation out of shame, embarrassment, or fear of social consequences, any type of disassociation is also a statement. And here's the statement we're making. They may be good enough for Jesus, but they're not good enough for me. That says more about us than it says anything about Jesus or the person that we're disassociating with. You know, Mahatma Gandhi was once asked, why do you ride third class? You are a global influencer. Access to the halls of power in every nation of the world, and you, ride, you continue to insist on riding the train in the third class car. Why? And his answer was, because there's no fourth class car. And Gandhi went on record as saying that he got his humanitarian ethic from the example of Jesus Christ, who lived outside of him, right? Because he, was, he, he aligned with Hinduism instead of Christianity in the end, largely because of disassociation from Christians. But he, got it, he, he went on record as saying, I get my humanitarian impulse and ethic from the example of Christ. How much more if Christ is inside of us? Ought we not only be willing, but, 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 but enthusiastic about associating with those that Jesus calls his bride? Which brings us lastly to the Lord's table. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound, which means healthy words that you've heard from me. In the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus, there's that phrase again, in Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message of grace. That God helps those who cannot help themselves. You know, in Mark's gospel, and remember Mark was mentored by Peter in the same way that Timothy is mentored by Paul. 
In Mark's gospel and in Mark's gospel alone, there's an added detail. When the, when the, when the women witness the resurrection of Christ and, and the angel of the Lord says, go tell the others, Mark makes sure to add the detail that the angel said to the women, go tell the others and Peter. Go tell the others and the one who betrayed me three times harder than Judas did. That I'm coming to them with grace, with forgiveness, with belonging, with a meal. The gospel is centered on grace and it's expressed through surprising inclusion. Matthew's genealogy, I encourage you to read through it. It's unprecedented because prior to Matthew, all of the other biblical genealogies included only fathers and sons. But Matthew's genealogy includes sinners and women. Sinners like Abraham, Jacob, and David. You can read their stories to see what I mean by the use of that word. And women like Rahab the prostitute. Ruth the Gentile, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah who gave birth to Solomon with David, Tamar, a victim of incest, Mary who was poor. Here we have Matthew the tax collector converted to Christ, completely deconstructing the social order. What an act of subversive defiance to the culture of Rome and to the culture of religious moralism. He confronts our legalism. He confronts our Jesus plus to remind us all of what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And if he is not ashamed of us, then what on earth do we have to be ashamed of? He welcomes and he eats with sinners. Which brings us to the Lord's table. But before that, as promised, let's stand and let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. Oh, we're not doing the Apostles' Creed today. My bad. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism. But don't forget it next time we do the Apostles' Creed. That's my mistake. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you set apart this bread and this cup? Nourish our bodies physically and, and, and all the more nourish our spirits in the spirit of Christ that teaches us that we need not be ashamed of ourselves because you are not ashamed of us. Instead, you unite yourself with us. You cleanse us through forgiveness. You clothe us with your righteousness. You care about us so much that you gave your life for us. What a valuation that is. Set us apart for you. Nourish us so that we might have strength to go out and live the things that we have heard. We also need not be ashamed of each other 
Because just as much as you're not ashamed of me, you're not ashamed of all of these sisters and brothers of mine whom you have also called your sisters and brothers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.